1: President and CEO of the Moorthy Law Firm. I'm so honored and delighted to welcome each of you today to our teleconference to discuss the H-1B registration process. I wanted to say new process, but it's not completely new because it was the same process as you know we had from last year. Um, So by way of introduction, let me introduce you to two of my esteemed panelists who are joining me in today's discussion, Alyssa Klein who's a member at the firm and who's been with the firm, what, 15 years approximately or longer or 15 years experience in immigration law. Same thing with Kevin. He's had, what, about 15 years at the firm. Um, And I was just thinking as I was going to introduce them, like, I have over 30 years. So between the three of us, we have well over half a century of experience in immigration law. And here we are going to spend the next 30 or 45 minutes trying to go over registration process and H-1B and all of that. So truly welcome, uh, truly delighted to introduce you to my esteemed colleagues, brilliant brilliant in their work, brilliant in the non-immigrant department, and we are all here as a team to continue to mentor, help, and guide you with processing and helping with the registration and with filing cases should you need our help. So just very, very briefly We know that the H1B has the maximum of 65,000 in the general quota every year. Then annual limit, the government fiscal year always starts October 1st, gets over on September 30th. So it starts October 1st of this year is 2021 till September 30th of 2022, which means it's called fiscal year 2022. But out of that, only 58,500 are available. For all other countries in the world, because Chile and Singapore use up those 6,500 numbers. But then we have this wonderful 20,000 additional slots for those who have completed a US master's degree from a nonprofit or public university. I know many of you have seen RFEs or denials because the university is not a nonprofit university or a public university, which has created problems with extensions. And of course, the government changed the system last year in 2020 when they said that instead of doing it in the regular way, once the regular quota is used up, then those who have the U.S. master's degree from one of these nonprofit or public universities will then be selected under the U.S. master's quota lottery selection program so that that increases their percentage or chances of getting selected by a little bit more because it is to encourage more U.S. master's degree holders to get filled up and use the H-1B slots. So with that, by way of background, I am going to request Alyssa. Alyssa, would you go over the electronic pre-registration system which we just said started from last year?
2: Hi,
0: Sheila. Yes, I'd be happy to go over the electronic pre-registration system. Um, As you said earlier, this is new as of last year. So, no longer are employers fi- preparing and filing entire petitions to go through a lottery. Um, they are doing a pre registration through USCIS's electronic system, so online, for the CAP subject H 1B candidates. Um, the USCIS designates a certain period of time for employers or their attorneys to complete and submit the online form to register each H 1B candidate that the employer plans to file an H-1B CAP petition for. The online pre-registration form requires essentially some basic information about the employer and the candidate. Once the uh, pre-registration period has completed, USCIS will run the lottery on the registrations that have been submitted. And then the employer or the attorney will be informed what candidates have been picked for the fiscal year and they will have a 90-day window within which to to prepare and file the complete H-1B petition for that particular selected candidate. Uh, USCIS uses the My USCIS portal for the pre-registration process, which is currently used for other types of applications like I-90s and 400s and other forms. So for this coming year, for the 2022 fiscal year. Uh, which starts from October 1st, 2021 and goes to September 30th, 2022, USCIS has designated uh, this window of time for employers or their attorneys to register. And it is from March 9th through March 25th, noon Eastern time to start on March 9th and noon Eastern time to close on March 25th. During this period, the employer or the attorney must complete and submit the electronic registration form for each CAP subject H-1B candidate that the company intends to file for for this coming fiscal year. And the company or their attorney or authorized representative must pay a $10 registration fee for each candidate. Now, in this online pre-registration process, companies can register for up to 250 beneficiaries or candidates Okay, and that can be submitted for one company um, at at a time and then pay the registration fee for the total number of beneficiaries or candidates, and so that would be up to 250 candidates. Um, It should be kept in mind that the employer, the petitioner, can only submit one registration per candidate or per beneficiary. Uh, If the company submits more than one registration for the same person, USCIS will invalidate all of the registration submitted for that
1: beneficiary by the employer. Wow, that sounds really, really scary. I know a lot of companies try to do sister companies, related companies, and I think we've talked about it in prior seminars and conferences, Alyssa and Kevin, about how it works, because then, even then, if it's the same and client-same projects or entities are related, they don't approve of those. I wonder if there's this new pre-registration system with this new electronic pre-registration system, because before they said if they were different federal tax employer tax identification numbers, it was considered a separate employer, but then they changed that policy. I don't know if there's been uh, any update on that whole thing since then. Uh, Do either one of you know if that's still okay or if that's a red flag and that could get flagged and then the same penalty Punishment because they're, but they're saying that they will only no longer allow that one that beneficiary. But they're saying they will sub- invalidate all registrations submitted for that beneficiary, but not for the entire employer to penalize the employer. So at least then, I guess there's a small silver lining. Well, and um, I think you know, just you know,
0: what, what they're talking about here is you know the elimination of the the, the multiple or duplicate registrations. Um, USCIS, you know, could certainly you, <clears throat> try to deny a case for, for other reasons, you know, once it's been filed. So they, they would certainly still be reviewing the case that's selected once it's filed as well. So even if something maybe isn't caught in that pre-registration system, it could certainly come up, you know, at a later stage in the case.
1: Absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah, might, uh, thank you, Alyssa, for that. And I'm going to ask, invite Kevin to jump in to talk about the actual how to register, registration process, go through the nuts and bolts. Sorry, Kevin, were you trying to say something?
2: Oh, Yeah, no, sorry. I just wanted to add uh, – thank you, Sheila. I appreciate that. Um, just, just to add a point to um, the multiple filings, uh, you know, there was this regulation that was passed in 2008 that said that you can't have more than one H-1B petition filed for the same beneficiary unless – It was for a materially uh, separate uh, but could be related entity. And the critical thing is that it's for a materially distinct position. That's the regulatory language, materially distinct position. So, and I think – The issues that came up since then, because like I remember in 2010 and 11 and 12, we were seeing a lot of H-1B cap cases filed and it was different employers, but for the same end client. And USCIS was saying, well, no, this isn't a materially distinct position. And then, um, but but see, one one of the issues there was we were seeing these things come up in the form of notice of intent to revoke. So this means the petition was approved, and then sometime after, USCIS came back and said, oh, you know what, um, we, I don't think we were supposed to approve that. But interestingly, what ended up happening, and we had a lot of these cases, those individuals who were unable to um, overcome the basis of the revocation, they said, sorry, we're, we're revoking this, we're revoking this, and the one that you withdrew, the other one. Um, those individuals were able to refile a new caps exempt petition, leave and get a visa and come back without having to go through the lottery again because there was no fraud, uh, arguably. So the, the the revocation was not retroactive. I think part of the reason for this registration was to be able to catch these things sooner so that a benefit is not conferred that maybe otherwise should not have been Uh, Conferred, But um, I I also saw some some cases where, you know, if the same employer is filing a registration for the same – more than one for the same individual, USCIS is just going to see that so much earlier now, I think, with this new uh, technology that was implemented last year.
1: You mean with the pre-registration? So let me just understand. Are you saying that in the prior cases that they actually were allowing the person to be cap-exempt because they had approved the person, even if they ultimately revoked that H-1 petition approval because – there were two separate cases filed by or one by a related entity, and so they ended up denying both of them after approving one of them. And so that person was then able to change file with a new employer, file an h one and go back and get and get a visa stamp and re-enter the u s.
2: Or even the same employer with a refiling. Now, to put this in context. This was during the Obama administration. I'm not sure how relevant that that is, but when we were testing this out. At the time, because, again, this regulation was implemented in 08, and it seemed to, like, kind of start catching cases in 10, 11, 12. When these revocations were not being uh, 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 overcome with the evidence, I'm sorry, this is the same end client project, they're revoking it. We said, well, give it a try. Go, Go to the consulate with a new petition, some with the same employer, some with other employers, and I've never heard of a case that didn't work because that revocation should not have been retroactive, right? That's only for fraud.
1: Right, and there was no fraud because you're saying they filed two with related entities, and so it was not considered as fraud.
2: Right, like I'm laying it out, just like with the masters, the, the for-profit master's degrees, you know, like you're laying it out, it's not fraud.
1: So you're doing the same thing with the U.S. master's degrees by saying it, and, and, and they're not now saying, sorry, go back to the bottom of the line, or you're know, not going to get Yeah.
2: Now. I know this is getting off on a little bit of a tangent here, but for those cases, uh, you know sometimes you make the argument that like oh well it was more likely than not counted in the regular cap if USCIS sometimes those were working more frequently in the past than more recently, and then if it's not working more recently, you know those individuals sometimes just refile and 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 it can work. They're kind of caught in a limbo. Do they file under the lottery when they have a cap subject approved petition that has not been retroactively revoked, or do they just refile again? and hope that the master's issue doesn't come up. It, it's kind of a weird... Um, and this time you know, just spoke on the, the
1: bachelor's. So you can see why I talk under 50 or 60 years of experience between the three of us, ladies and gentlemen, because this is what I mean. We have so many gray areas, so many, so much experience, so many different cases and types of cases and situations and exemptions <laughs> and knowing the law and knowing the nuances of the law and knowing the exceptions to the rules and then the exceptions to the exception to the rule Um, which is fascinating, interesting, and can help you try to get an H-1B approval for a client, even if somebody else says, sorry, there's no chance you can't get this case. Okay, so let's jump to the actual registration. Uh, Alyssa talked about the March 9th to March 25th. Let's touch upon the process. We went through the dates. We went through the timing. We went through my USBIS portal that you just laid out. So how does it work, and how do we as Multi Law Firm, how can we help the client with this whole process? if the attorney is going to register?
2: Yeah, so there's just a couple of uh, handful of important dates to remember. Um, You know, a lot of us are super eager to start doing as much as we can as soon as possible because, you know, we remember this time uh, only a few years ago, a couple years ago, when it's like if I haven't done everything by now, it's like I'm late. But, you know, the, the timelines are different now. USCIS conducted a webinar uh, about the pre-registration process recently. Um, they did the same thing last year, and uh, I think the main my main takeaway from that is that not much has changed in the 2.0 or, or the second uh, iteration of this process. Maybe just uh, some lessons learned internally, but um, I think the only thing that I got from the new process or from the process this year is that they will indicate whether it's a regular lottery or master's cap case uh, in, in the registration selection process. Uh, but th- there are some important dates to remember. Um, most important thing, I guess, at this stage, uh, you can't register until March 9th. Um, and uh, so the registration period, as Alyssa had mentioned earlier, starts from March 9th, ends on uh, at noon Eastern Standard Time, and ends on March 25th, noon Eastern Standard. Prior to then, the uh, petitioners and registrants can begin creating the accounts uh, on March 2nd uh, at noon Eastern Time. And if there's an attorney that's going to be involved in the case, there needs to be the uh, attorney uh, has to register an account and implement or or submit their G-28, the notice of appearance, uh, which is normal for every H-1B case or or every immigration case involving a lawyer. But because of the technology, there's a little bit of a um, coordinated effort between employer and employee, uh, employer and lawyer to make sure that that's done. So First, the employer needs to create an account that uh, will allow the attorney to fill in the required information to register and create that that G28. After the G28, the entry of representation document is created, the attorney gets a one-time passcode, and we provide this, or the attorney provides this passcode to the employer who has to log in to enter the attorney representative passcodes. I guess this is a, a, a technology thing just to make sure that the attorney that is Uh, Putting this information in is actually representing the employer in the case. Uh, Once that one-time passcode is entered, the employer will get the G28 for review and uh, that information is completed by the attorney uh, for the the individual employee that's going to be registered. Once the employer accepts that G28 and registration, it's sent back to the attorney to finish that process, make the $10 payment, and then submit the registration. And if there's some problems, it'll come back to the attorney to make corrections. Uh, the the one good thing I guess about all this is that the signatures for the the required signatures are electronic, so it's easy to send them back and forth. But the you know it, it does require a little bit of coordination between the attorney and the employer with that passcode. And you know, a lot of times employers get super busy with the other stuff. I mean, the whole point of hiring an attorney is to deal with this, but unfortunately, the way the technology is set up. It does require um, uh, uh, communication in the beginning with the employer and the attorney to make sure it's done smoothly.
1: Thank you very much, Kevin. appreciate that. I'm not sure if I missed the, the... I know we talked about March 9th, 12 noon is the first earliest to file in March 25th, but I'm not sure if we touched upon the fact that the date the USCIS will notify all selected registrants is the end of the month, March 31st, and then you as the employer or we as your attorneys would actually be able to file... On April 1st, I know it's April 1st is the earliest date. If we get notification on March 31st that the fiscal year 2022 H-1B CAP subject petitions may be actually filed by you as the employer or us as your lawyers, We multi Law Firm as your lawyers, April 1st. And as like Kevin said, you're not having to file it all within the next, you know, within a month, but rather you have the luxury of 90 days from when to file, so you're not as rushed as you would in a, you know, prior to 2020 from last year. Okay, let's say, the next point, of course, which we want to go over with registration is, or what is all of the information that must be included in the pre-registration system? So for each of this pre-registration account, the employer or it's, if they are the lawyers, multi-law firm, we will need to provide certain basic information on you as the employer, and the foreign national who is being sponsored to indicate whether it is registration for the regular case or the master's case. And then um, the details on the employee-slash-beneficiary, which must be provided, include obviously the full proper legal name of the employee-slash-beneficiary, the date of birth, the country of birth, the country of citizenship because sometimes birth can be in a country different country than you are a citizen A gender male female and then the passport number of that uh, beneficiary slash employee and then the information that is required from the employer or petitioner uh, which uh, which is provided as part of this pre registration is either the legal name the full legal name of the entity and if there is a do- doing business as name and include that the tax identification slash federal employer identification number or FEIN, the full address wherever the headquarters or whatever location of the employer, and who the authorized signatory is. If it's head of HR, it's the president, CEO, who is signing on behalf to represent the company. And so, while preparing this pre-registration form the user, whether it's you, the employer, or we all as the attorneys, we will be able to review and edit the information as many times as we need to, and the information will automatically be saved, and it will actually be available for 30 days. So once the registration is submitted, then no longer can you make any changes or edit it. And as users, we should be able to delete a registration and recreate it and resubmit it uh, submit a new registration as long as it's before the registration period ends, which as we talked about this year is 12 noon Eastern time, March 25th. But USCIS has also indicated that upon completion of the registration and before it is submitted, the system will actually provide alerts in case any information is missing or incomplete or improper, put in an improper fashion, etc. But the USCIS has made it clear that this is a verification more for completeness, not for accuracy. So if you put the wrong date and wrong month or we switch it around because you're thinking maybe Indian style instead of American style with day of the year and then month, whereas in America we put the month first and then the year, then the birth, the date, then that's going to be a problem because now you've messed up the system. Uh, The petitioner or employer is not required to provide any information regarding the position itself, the salary, the job requirements, etc., which I actually think is very helpful. So because if you as a client are now trying to find end client and project work before you had to guess six months before, what may be required in projects always changed. Now you can do it, you know, even if you file by April, May, June, then you only have to wait July, August, September. So it's only a three or four month wait as opposed to a six, seven month wait before, which was always scary, six month plus wait. However, the employer is required to attest that each registration is connected with a legitimate slash bona fide job offer, and that once the registration is selected, that the employer has every intention to file an H-1B petition for the named individual slash beneficiary. So with that as a process system, I'm going to invite Alyssa to talk a little bit about what happens at the end of the pre-registration period after this registration is completed,
0: thank you, Sheila. So, yes, at the end of this pre registration period, which is, you know, as we've said, March 25th, USCIS is going to have to determine whether or not they received um, more registrations than needed to reach the regular cap and the master's cap. So, what's going to happen is it's first going to conduct a lottery from the regular cap and then conduct the lottery. Um, for the master's cap. So if you have people that were master's eligible that were not selected in the regular cap, then they will also go into the master's cap lottery. Um, Once this is completed, USCIS is going to notify the employer petitioner uh, or their attorney for each selected registration uh, that they may file the H-1B petition on behalf of that employee beneficiary listed in the registration. USCIS uh, has also stated that the account holders who submitted the selected registrations will receive notifications by email or text that an action has been added to their account, and then the account holders can log into the accounts to see the full notice. The notice is going to provide the petitioner slash employer with that 90-day filing window that you mentioned earlier, Sheila, to submit the Mm -hmm. petition and indicate which service center the H-1B petition should be filed at. So the registration selected during the initial period, the 90-day filing period is April 1st, uh, and that's when it begins and runs for 90 days. Uh, Petitioners slash employers will have to submit a copy of the registration notice with their filing. So it's An extra document that goes in with your H-1B petition. Uh, During the recent USCIS webinar, they did indicate that this notice should be placed on top of the filing. Um, USCIS also has procedures in place to select additional registrations if sufficient number of full H-1B petitions are not submitted during that 90-day filing window, or even reopen the registration period in the unlikely event that the cap is not reached during the initial registration period. And we did see that happen last year where there was a second round of of selections made in the summer. So we did have, so people did have a second chance of being selected. Um, If the petition is selected, USCIS is going to confirm on the selection notice whether the selection was under the regular lottery or the master's cap, which, as Kevin mentioned, it seems to be the uh, new, uh, new change to, to the system from last year.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Uh, I appreciate that. Just to be clear, when you, we refer to the saying that the USCIS will notify the employer, the attorney selected, right? all of this is done through the same MyUSCIS portal and not like the olden days mail-mail registration or mail Documents or paperwork—it's all purely online.
0: Yeah, the the notification will happen online. Kevin, did they mention anything about physical filings of notices during during the, the webinar?
2: No, I didn't hear anything mentioned about physical notices. I guess uh, I, I doubt anybody even cared, just because we've been as a practical matter not been dealing with physical anything until we go to do the actual filing. Right.
1: Right, and even last year even last year we were the, the 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 pandemic had just started in March of 2020, so even last year's filings were pretty much all online which with considering the delays in the postal service that would that that's actually very helpful, but that means that you as the employers or we as the attorneys would need to look at each file on a very regular basis and each to ensure that the person has in fact been selected because the last thing you want to do is find that somebody dropped the ball and didn't verify or double check, or missed the fact that they had that 90-day window to file. Okay, yeah, so let's jump next to the – sorry, next, jump to the master's cap and registration, and I'll invite Kevin to share a little bit of updates.
2: Yeah, um, so just uh, as a reminder for uh, the master's cap, there is the additional 20,000 numbers available at, uh, comprising of the whole 85,000 dedicated specifically for those from with a master's degree from a U.S. nonprofit or public uh, institution of higher learning, and uh, a common question that we get with this whole registration process is, uh, well, what what if I don't have the degree completed at the time of registration? Um, basically, I'm graduating the summer of this registration year, uh, of this lottery season. So, uh, if I'm graduating in, in June, July of 21 then I am able to file the, the petition with a master's degree. In other words, as long as I'm meeting the requirements for the master's at the time of filing, so like ninety day, within 90 days of uh, the registration selection, I am eligible for the master's cap. So, um, you know, again, a common question is, you know, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm finishing my master's degree. Here we are in, in February uh, getting re- or March and getting ready to file for the registration in March for selection in April, but I'm not going to graduate until June. This is okay. You're, you're completing the master's degree within 90 days of the registration date. And this was made clear when they started registration last year in, a, um, in the rule that the requirements for the H-1B filing, the one we're talking about right now, having a U.S. master's degree, must be met at the time of filing the petition, not at the time of registration for the lottery.
1: So thank you so much, Kevin, for that information. So just to reinforce and reiterate that the H-1B beneficiary has to, even if the beneficiary of the employee has not yet graduated until after the registration period ends, it's not a problem because that degree can still be used to qualify for the H-1B job as long as the employee slash beneficiary has completed all of the degree requirements before the petition is filed. And I know so many of us graduate generally, most people with their bachelor's or master's in May or June of each year. So you would then, if it's May, you couldn't file in April and May till the graduation is over. And once you either get the degree or complete all of the requirements for the degree, then the registration can be submitted on your behalf within that 90-day window. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Let's now jump back to you, Alyssa, to go over the registration and cap-gap issues because that's a big deal for both of you and uh, Alyssa and Kevin to discuss the issue of registration and cap-gap.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I know that this, this is very important, especially when, you know, year after year the, you know, quota is met that people find themselves, you know, even with, you know, three years of, of OPT, that their OPT may be ending um, before the start of the H-1B. So just to go over the background generally um, for cap gap, uh, a beneficiary slash employee is able to change status to H-1B in the U.S. with an H-1B petition requesting an October 1st start date only if they are in non-immigrant status in the US, which will continue at least until September 30th, 2021. However, for somebody here in F1 status, the situation is a little different. The students, if the students F1 status or OPT ends prior to September 30th, 2021, they can be eligible for an automatic cap gap extension until September 30th, assuming that these four conditions are met. First, that the petition is filed before the expiration of the OPT or the end of the grace period. Two, the change of status is requested on the H-1B petition as opposed to consular notification. Um, And three, that the October 1st start date is requested and four, that ultimately Uh, the the case is eventually approved. Now, the cap gap extension starts when the student's current period of F1 status ends, regardless of whether the student is in OPT at that time. If the student is in OPT at the time of filing, meaning their work authorization card is is still valid, uh, then the OPT work work authorization can be extended until September 30th. If they are not Within that OPT validity period, or if the petition is filed in their 60-day grace period, the student can remain in the U.S. until October 1st, but they they will not have work authorization.
2: Uh, yeah. So, so basically, to be eligible for for cap gap under the registration process, the student that's that's getting selected that uh, who has F1 status or OPT and it's ending during the 90-day period the H-1B CAP petition uh, is uh, filed, uh, must be filed before the end of that OPT, So, and, and that's regardless of when the 90-day period ends. Um, it's important to remember that the registration for lottery does not provide any specific CAP-GAP benefits, just, just filing the registration. A person is able to benefit from CAP-GAP only if that registration is selected, and the CAP, the cap subject H-1B petition also needs to be filed. Also, so so selection uh, filing is not enough of the registration. Selection is not enough. It's the follow through with the H-1B petition filing after. And um, so so if an H-1B petition, uh, H-1B beneficiaries OPT, F-1 OPT, is expiring early in that 90-day period, it it might be something good to think about in terms of preparing the H-1B petition before the beneficiary is selected in the lottery, just to give uh, that employer some flexibility on being ready to file it uh, sooner than later to be able to benefit from that that cap gap provision, and to you know reduce any kind of disruption in, in the ability to work. These ca- these cases are uh, these issues are very case by case. So I would definitely suggest uh, talking to an immigration attorney uh, as the different issues come up this season.
1: Makes a lot of sense. And, you know, like we just said, on the one hand, you want to file after you graduate in May or June. But then if your OPT is expiring in that situation, you obviously want to ensure that a year later that you are filing it well before the actual OPT work authorization expires so you can continue to work legally and have valid cap gap work authorization, cap extension and work authorization until September 30th. Um, so that you don't have to stop working because it is tough for people to just stay, live on love and fresh air because we do need, you know, these kids especially with no money and huge student loans really need that money and can't be months and months and months without any income while they're trying to struggle and survive in a new country and a new culture and all of those issues dealing with it. So as you can see and as from our discussion so far, The cap registration system, the entire H-1B registration, the legal issues, all of this are certainly very complex issues. The registration itself has been a major change uh, to the H-1B lottery process as we were used to it for several years. The good news with it, of course, is you as employers don't have to pay for filing H-1 petitions that may never get selected in the lottery because now you only pay for it when the case is actually selected in the lottery. So it's savings for the employer, FedEx costs, savings for the USCIS not having to mail back packages. Uh, But because this is only the second year of the pre-registration system, they are still trying to work out kinks in the system. I know the government had a web webinar, the USCIS last week for both employers and for attorneys to understand and explain the process. And both Kevin and Alyssa and myself discussed some of those issues today. Uh, we at the Murti Law Firm obviously will continue to closely monitor the situation to update uh, each of you through our, uh, you know, website, our popular, the world's most popular legal website, the murti.com website, as any, if any more information or clarifications are issued by USCIS on anything dealing with H-1B registrations or cap or filings or anything connected with the H-1B processing. And uh, obviously, as you can see from the discussion with Alyssa Klein, Kevin Andrews, and myself, we all have, uh, you know, there are nuances, there are complexities, there are multiple options. And so certainly our incredible team here at the Multi Law Firm is happy to continue to help and educate, enlighten, empower you about the complex H1B process uh, to help you and your employees to retain and hire some of your most valued employees. So... Uh, We certainly hope that you will have, as we celebrate one year of COVID closures, which I hope is the end, uh, in the next few months as we all get vaccinations, that you will have good luck in filing the registrations, that you will do it, understanding the process. And if you don't have an attorney or law firm, certainly feel free to use any one of us. Contact us at murti.com, Corporate Services, Client Services, Kathy Rush or any one of us at lawatmulti.com, and it would truly be an honor and pleasure to continue to help you and your company on behalf of Alyssa Klein, Kevin Andrews, and myself, Sheila Muthi, and our entire Law Firm team. We want to thank you for joining us today. Stay safe, stay healthy, and hopefully we will get through this registration period successfully. Take care and have a wonderful afternoon. Bye-bye.
0: This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.